0: the Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. Hello, everybody. Joel
1: here. I have three announcements at the top of the show. The first is Happy Thanksgiving. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, as Thanksgiving here 2020. We hope you have a wonderful time with family, friends, and have a great day of thankfulness. Second announcement is our book giveaway winner for this book. We're giving away The Bruise Read by Richard Sibbs, courtesy of Banner of Truth. Jesus Archuleta is our winner for this book giveaway. We will be in contact with you shortly to get that mailed over to you. Last announcement is that Troy and I are taking this week off because it's Thanksgiving. But we wanted to put something in the feed. And so we talked about revisiting an episode that we thought... More people should have heard and maybe didn't at the time. And so today that is the CI Schofield episode. So so if you're new to the show and you haven't heard that one yet, or you skipped it when it came through the first time, give the Schofield episode a listen this time through. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Have a wonderful week. This
2: is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
3: I am the light of the world. Think of the audacity of that statement. When uttered, it was a mere assertion. But after 1900 years have passed, it is a statement.
1: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by C.I. Schofield. It was preached likely in the late 1800s in America. Joel, Cyrus Ingerson
2: Schofield, who uh, went by C.I. Schofield, is a name that is quite famous and controversial. In this sermon we're going to listen to, he gives a very scientific but bold apologetic for believing in Christ. And it makes sense because in the age that he lived in, he lived at a time when there was a lot of doubt. There's really the beginning of kind of this liberal movement that's going to kind of undo the Christianity side of our of our culture and the religion that had kind of been controlling America up until, up until that point it would be common for people to say they were a Christian going to church. And the things that happened right around here with Darwin and a lot of other people will begin the process of that ending. And yet I have to say that Schofield's life story was actually what really fascinated me in all of this. And, and it was probably one that will, if we were to be honest, require more than just one episode to fully untangle. But for starters, if I can just say, he, he seemed to have made it his goal to live in every state of the union. This isn't really important to the episode, but from my count, he lived in New York Uh, Missouri, Kansas, Michigan, Tennessee, uh, Texas, and Pennsylvania. And that's all I can remember just off the top of my head. That's a lot of states for a guy in the 1800s at least.
1: Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know this uh, until we did research for this episode, but he spent a lot of his life and a lot of like key moments in his life happened about an hour away from where I grew up and now currently still live. Uh, and I had no idea, and this back in the you know late 1800s when it was the Wild West out here in the Midwest. So I had no idea about his history and his past. I knew the name Schofield because when I was in high school, Schofield was like, I don't know if it was new around that time, like the Schofield study by, I mean, I know there's been renditions throughout the years, but and they must have just had like a publication that was, being advertised because that was the one to have. But I didn't know anything about him growing up and I learned a lot during this uh, research for this episode. He was born in Michigan in 1843. His family had a Puritan background, but according to Schofield, he was raised lightly Episcopalian. His mother died when he was very young and he had no formal schooling. Again, so he was born in 1843, so that means when he was a teenager towards the end of his teen years, this American Civil War broke out. At the time the war broke out, he was living in Tennessee and he would enlist as a Confederate in the Civil War, which I don't think we've ever had. Have a we Confederate had soldiers?
2: And no, I think this is our first Confederate
1: soldier. Very so for people who already don't like CI Schofield, you've already got some ammo sure. in your gun there. <laughs> this is pre salvation though, so I feel like it's a little bit different. Yeah. He served in three pretty major battles as a soldier and he ends up getting injured and awarded a medal of bravery during that last battle so
2: after this he goes back to lebanon tennessee having been kind of formally discharged he got injured we don't need you anymore but then they uh they re-enlist him into the army and as you know historically the south does not go on to win this war and so it makes sense that they didn't want to let a good soldier go home but schofield kind of wasn't having it he he instead, uh, he's told to report to this base in Tennessee, but he slips off into Kentucky. Uh, they say, hey, we'll we'll let you over, but you got to pledge to the union. He pledges to the union. Some may have called him a deserter, but the guy was less than 20. He'd already served three battles. He got injured fighting for them. He was told to go home, got a medal and everything, and then, uh, yeah, we need you to come back. I Personally... I would probably want to skip out on all that, too. And just, no, nah, I think I've fought. I'm good. I'm out. Um, he gets a job working with a clerk's office and, and over in Missouri and starts studying uh, the law.
1: Yeah, and part of this was because he he kind of married into a, a pretty well-off family. He married in 1866 to a woman uh, named Leontine. She was French. She was a French Catholic woman, and, and she came from a, a very well-connected family. It was her brother that got Schofield his first job. At this law firm two years later in 1869 he begins working in Atchison Kansas and finishes his law studies there he took the Kansas bar exam and passed and in 1873 President Grant appoints him to be the youngest Attorney General in the country's history at age 29 so his life's going all right so far as he's growing up he's the youngest Attorney General of all time uh, and has a pretty well-off job but uh, he only keeps that job for six months, and it's a pretty crazy six months how <laughs> is, that unfolds. This is the beginning
2: of a, of a dark, dark period for our guy. So there's a few different ways this next part of the story is told. The people who dislike Schofield, uh, they have one version, and then the people who like him, they have another. We're going to just kind of give you the best interpretation as best as we can, kind of balance it out here. Whether it was because of his past in the Civil War or because he got mixed in with bad company during his visits to Washington... He became a heavy alcoholic, a a, a big drinker during this time. And he gets in trouble with the law as well. Rumors begin to spread that he was accepting bribes from the railroad, that he was forging signatures and misusing financial funds in this part of Kansas. And I will also point out, too, that his first child is born during this time in St. Joseph, Missouri. And it's important to point out this little triangle because it would seem that the area he's really kind of centered in is the kind of Kansas City, Kansas, Missouri area, and and it sounds like he's a pretty bad guy, but I think if we remember exactly what's going on during this time period that he's living in, you might, you know, still, he's a, not a good guy, give him a little <laughs> bit more grace, so yeah. I, I, when
1: I kind of thought about where he was at, I go, okay, this kind of makes sense. This is definitely, like, Wild West. See, this is Atchison, Kansas, in 1869, which is the year that he moves to Kansas, Jesse James, the gang leader, was still yeah. very active in the area. A man named Hurricane Bill was uh, in Kansas attacking cattle, and a sheriff named Wild Bill moved in to kind of help squash crime in the county at that time in Kansas. What a time to be alive. Can yeah, I, I would just say that like I wish we could all have nicknames like that. Yeah. Event, like in the middle of Wild West, you know we Tornado got- Tornado Troy, Hurricane the- Bill, Wild Wild. Like, they're both. They're all Bills. That's true. So I guess if we were bills. <laughs> okay, we can move on. Anyway, so imagine being a lawyer and the attorney general in that area of of again, what is pretty much the the land of cowboys and gunslingers. It's different than politicians in in DC. And in DC was also kind of in this like financial panic. And we're
2: talking eight years after the Civil War. Imagine, yeah. I mean, the country was split in two. Things are not just instantly better.
1: Yeah, they were kind of preparing and fearing economic crash at that time. And so when you have the youngest attorney general that you think is misusing funds, like, it, you can see why people may have, uh, may
2: have attacked him. This is not us saying that he did nothing wrong. We're sure he did. We're just saying if you weren't a Christian, the Civil War had just destroyed the country, a war you'd been injured in, and you lived in the Wild West under a corrupt administration, and the railroad wanted to pass your town maybe you might also be tempted to accept a bribe and maybe you would look the other way on a few things too now we're already a good way into Schofield's life and we have not mentioned God much and that's because he was not a Christian at this point in his life in fact after all after his fall from public office he becomes an even worse alcoholic and in 1874 he starts his own private practice but his drinking pretty much sends it into the gutter and by 1879 it's it's on its last leg Uh, He abandons his wife during this time and his two daughters, and his wife would officially divorce him for abandonment in 1883. And this would have been the end of a tragic story that nobody would know about, except during this time, he also met a lawyer, a man named Tom Mephieters, and we're going to refer to him as Tom,
1: simply because the last name is difficult to describe. Mephieters. Mephieters. And it's spelled M apostrophe P-H-E-E-T-R-S. Yeah which we think is pronounced Mepheders, ma- but... It looks like Mepheders. Tom, yeah, Tom, this is a kind of a neat instance in history where we have it well-documented that, uh, like as Troy was saying, like, Schofield would have been forgotten about if it wasn't for one man who had, had an impact on his life and influenced his life, and he was the man that led him to the Lord. Tom was... He was, he was passionate about God. He was passionate about his salvation. He, he was talking about God with everyone that he knew, and... And he'd work with Schofield around the office and see him coming in out of the office. And one day he he confronted him. He says, "Schofield, been kind of nervous to ask you, but why aren't you a Christian?" And Schofield would talk about how God would not want uh, an alcoholic as as bad as he was. That that he could not obtain heaven. And Tom uh, sat down with him and shared the gospel and shared that Jesus does want him and that he. Can be forgiven, and Schofield would recount and talk about how you know growing up he was never told how to be a Christian, what what a Christian was, and so Tom would read portions of the Bible to him and ask him to be a Christian. It, it took a little while. Schofield was was kind of resilient at first. He you know you talk about wanting to think about it, to go home think about it, but Tom continued to just to push it a little bit more, to push a little more, and he says, hey, you've been thinking about this your whole life. And you need to decide whether you believe in Christ and are going to be saved. And Schofield broke down, and the two of them prayed in the office, and Schofield accepted Jesus.
2: This story is really cool. I love this. For starters, just if I heard somebody say, I'm going to think about it, I would consider that a victory and go home and be like, guys, pray for him. He's thinking about it. And I love that Tom goes, no, you've been thinking about it. Now make a decision right here right now. The Holy Spirit probably leading through that. But that is just, that part really got to me. But the other thing, too— I think this is the latest coming to the Lord, you know, accepting Christ in our history of the show. He's 36 years old, give or take at this time when he comes to Christ. And because a lawyer wouldn't take no for a reason, he comes to know God. He definitely, um, it was really different and encouraged me from a lot of of the people we have on the show. It was just, it was different. I loved it.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden.
0: The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better? The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So We want to make the whole road safer. So that's, the, that's where we're coming from on this podcast.
3: Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts
0: were in the right
1: place, But because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really wanna bring both our our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our
3: neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts.
2: We could go on and on about Schofield, and and I think he'll have to come up again to catch the rest of his show, rest of the stuff. And there are controversial parts of his life, and things that he believed that some of you are probably, you know, wanting us to touch on more. But. Just to give you some of the highlights of where he goes on from here he becomes a pastor Uh, he gets an he gets a new family um ray does things better by them than the first family the alcoholism part of his life changes and he ends up serving alongside D.L. moody he was actually kind of D.L. moody's replacement pastor and the schofield bible ends up being one of the most you know famous bible commentary sets the one that you were talking about in american history he also and this was something i did not know he founded uh cam international and this is this group uh, this mission group that was focused on going to Central America. And it's still around today. It's under a different name now. but And this happened after he met, who else? Hudson Taylor. And was so inspired by his passion for reaching the lost that he too wanted to get kind of in on that and say, I'm going to, you know, you're going to Asia. I'm going to go to South America and Central America. And again, this guy's life just changed so much from where he was
1: to, to what he became, thanks to meeting the Lord. Yeah, and this sermon that we're about to listen to, he talks about the person of Jesus Christ and how important it is to remember who our faith is in. He talks about him almost like in a scientific way, you know, as this person who has changed history, kind of kind of looking at his effect that he's had on society as a whole. And you can kind of see in Schofield's life how he was changed by the revivals and how this whole sermon is kind of designed in a way to show how real Christ is.
3: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 I want to present to you as best as I may, the grounds upon which Christians receive Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh. Beyond all question, Christianity as a religion is committed to that belief. Whatever it may call itself, anything less than that is not Christianity. Eliminate that, and there is left a marvelous story, for sure, but it is like a box of wonderful gems for which the key is missing. There is left a wonderful idea, but without any authority. There is left the promise of a great spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom has no king. Christianity stands or falls by the proposition that Jesus of Nazareth was more than man. In other words, while being man, that he was God, manifest in the flesh. That is a stupendous assertion. But God, my dear friends, does not ask us to believe it without proof. What then are the reasons why we Christians receive Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh. Now, I will feel more comfortable as I go on, if I say at the outset that the merits of my cause should not be judged by my ability in presenting it. Truth itself transcends the ability of any man to present it. Give me your attention to that cumulative body of truth which establishes beyond all doubt this idea that Jesus of Nazareth, the historic Christ, was God manifest in the flesh. First, the four Gospels present the record of a life and the impression of a character which are absolutely unique. The Jesus of the Gospels stands alone. He is a class all his own. There are points of resemblance between Genghis Khan and Washington, between Caesar and Napoleon, between Chaucer and Shakespeare, between Hesiod and Homer, between Dante and And Milton, but Jesus is alone unique. I will not stop to prove that, since no one denies it, but I ask you to take note of three respects in which the character presented in these four Gospels stands solitary among men. First, in that it is absolutely without sin. Now, neither in Scripture, nor in history, nor in fiction, nor in our own observation, do we find another of which that can be said. History gives the record of no sinless men. Fiction has never yet presented a perfect character. The effort has been made a thousand times, but upon the most perfect character ever constructed by the genius of man is some fatal defect, some taint of imperfection. If it didn't lead too far from the subject, it would be interesting to take up some of the most perfect characters in the Bible, in history, and in fiction, and show how true it is that tested even by our own imperfect standards, there is in the best of them some obvious defect. They are too strong or too weak. They are too tender or too severe. They are all marked by excess in one direction and limitation in another. Not one doesn't bear the mark of human frailty and imperfection, but the four Gospels presents a sinless life. It is not merely that the four evangelists assert that fact But they give us the life itself, so that we may see for ourselves that it was sinless. Again, the man of the Gospels is unique in that he is the only absolutely universal man. We know as a matter of history that he sprang out of Israel, that he was a Jew, and we are called to account for the fact that out of the most exclusive, most distinctive, most peculiar of all peoples should have come the one universal man. But he came out of a little nation, which has forever had the strongest marks of race distinction and race peculiarity. Out of a nation obsessed with race came a man who erased racial barriers. The third respect in which the man of the four gospels is unique is that he was as perfect in the balance and proportion of his qualities as he was in his sinlessness. Not only was he a sinless man, but he was a perfect man, a rounded man. Now all other wisdom has been marred by some folly. All other strength has gone over into excess or violence. All other sweetness has degenerated into weakness. But Jesus was wise without folly, strong without violence, sweet without weakness. In these three respects, the man of the gospel stands alone among all men, against the records of whose lives have come down to us and those invented by the genius of man. Leaving the Gospels now, and coming on down the stream of time for the last 1900 or more years, we find the influence of Jesus in human history has been as unique as his sinlessness or his perfectness. In all history, no one else has influenced the course of human affairs or the trend of human lives, just as the man of the four Gospels has influenced them. Napoleon, speaking of Alexander, Caesar, and himself, said, We founded great empires, but we founded them on force. The principles on which we founded our kingdoms were natural principles. But Jesus founded an empire which is indestructible, which is growing day by day, which is ruled over by an invisible king, and which is founded upon love. I, said he, know man. And I tell you that Jesus was more than man. In history, then, we have the impressiveness of Jesus Christ. These things are indisputable. Now, a startling fact concerning himself and his influence on humanity is that Jesus said it would be so. He said, for instance, I am the light of the world, John eight twelve. Think of the audacity of that statement. A young Jewish peasant, a carpenter by trade with no education, without acknowledged rank, without wealth, announces to a little group of converted fishermen and harlots and tax gatherers that he is the light of the world when uttered it was a mere assertion but after 1900 years have passed it is a statement which now has evidence in its favor think of the audacity of it not homer not socrates not plato not moses no it is not one of these but a peasant who says i am the light of the world dear friends These are undisputed phenomena. No one can or does dispute them. That explanation which adequately accounts for them all is the one upon which a reasonable person will agree with. Is that not a reasonable statement? You may be interested to know that this formula belongs to the vocabulary of the sciences, not to theology. In the investigation of nature, certain material phenomena are to be accounted for, and science says... That explanation, which adequately accounts for them all, is the true explanation, and reason says, Amen. It can scarcely be necessary to refer to the various theories, which have been claimed to account for the phenomena which we have been considering, but which have been abandoned as inadequate. It was said, for instance, that Jesus was invented by the evangelists, that the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John invented the character which they present. It was pointed out long ago by the unbeliever Renan that only a Jesus could invent a Jesus. How does it happen that what the strenuous efforts of patriarch, prophet, and priest failed to achieve, what the sublimest human genius failed to invent, that these four writers accomplished with ease, precision, and naturalness to which every page of the artless narrative bears witness? It puts together a greater strain upon credulity to believe that four men could have created such a character as Jesus than to believe the simple, sublime, and rational biblical explanation of Jesus. How did it come that four different accounts written by different men at different times in a different style and selecting for the illustration of this character different incidents very largely should all succeed in producing identically the same impression? If you read Matthew, you get the impression of a sinless being, perfectly wise and universal. If you read Mark, there comes to you the impression of the same sinlessness, the same universality, the same perfection of character. And if you read Luke and John, the impression is precisely the same. It does violence to reason and probability to say that such men could invent such a character, but the theory has passed out of the minds of men as inadequate and irrational and I refer to it merely to show how men have striven to avoid the only reasonable conclusion concerning this character. Another theory, which had possession of unbelieving minds for a time, was the mythical theory of Strauss. The theory which said that the Jesus of the Gospels was a myth, that the Gospels, as we have them, were slowly built up through some 400 years, and that the first crude record was subjected to numerous prunings, and increased by numberless inventions. Finally, there came out the picture which we have of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, even Strauss abandoned this theory before he died, and he did it because the severest hostile criticism was compelled to concede the authenticity of at least four of the epistles of the Apostle Paul, that they were written within 30 or 35 years after the death of Christ, and because of these epistles of Paul, there is the feeling of the same character. There are the same affirmations concerning his personality and the same doctrine concerning his work and the purpose that brought him into the world. And Strauss admitted that 30 years was too brief a time for the development of a myth. So that theory was abandoned. Just recently, as many of you know, there has been discovered a work known once to have existed but believed to have perished, the Diatessaron of Tatian, The work of a man who was born in the year in which the Apostle John died. And this work proves that the four Gospels, as we have them, were at that point in existence. Exit, then, the mythical theory. But the problem remains. We have to account for Jesus. How will we do it? You know the biblical solution. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John 1.1, 1, 1, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. That is the biblical solution. Now, no one can question the adequacy of this solution, for it perfectly accounts for all the phenomena. If this unique being were indeed God, manifest in the flesh, his sinlessness is accounted for, the rounded perfection of all the attributes of his character is accounted for and his unique influence in the world, is accounted for. No one questions that. It is a complete solution of all the phenomena. Now we are prepared to see how perfectly the solution harmonizes with adequate motives for an incarnation. First, if God was ever to be fully revealed to man, there lay upon him the inevitability that he should do precisely that thing. All of nature, all of history... All of the Bible is in truth the unveiling, the self-disclosure of God. If you look out upon the universe, you see his handiwork. You remember how short, and it seems to me unanswerable, is the Apostle Paul's argument from the universe for the existence of God. Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Hebrews 3, four. If we see a house, We do not think that it was built by anything less than a man. We look out upon this great universe and say, nothing less than God has been here. From the universe, we get a revelation of God's power. We get a revelation of His wisdom. But how far off that God is from a mortal being on this earth, stumbling along a dark path which He never trod before and will never tread again, to fall at last into an unexplained grave. When God puts his self-revelation into words, there is, of course, an immeasurable advance, but also a kind of incompleteness. You know how we try sometimes to describe a thing in words. Then we do better than that. We make a picture of it. But when we are able to lead the person to whom we are endeavoring to communicate the idea, to the very thing itself, then the description becomes intelligible. The picture is full of meaning. Suppose I was trying to describe to you the beauty of the sunset, and you had never seen a sunset. I might pile words upon words and fill them with color, yet I should give a very imperfect idea of a sunset. But if I could take you to some western slope and let you stand there while the sun sank behind the cloud palaces of the sky, fusing their dull grays into purple... And scarlet and gold, and the glory and beauty of the sunset gave themselves to you, you would no longer need my words, for you would know for yourself. Now there is God, infinitely tender and beautiful and glorious, and here are we, finite and stupid and earthly. And can you think of any other way by which it would be possible for God really to make himself known to us? Is there any other way? except to enter into a human life and translate deity in its power and perfection. That this is the only perfect divine manifestation is felt dimly by all races, and there is no false religion which doesn't consider the thought of incarnation in it. The thought that the God they seek and whom they serve and worship has at some time incarnated himself in a human life. And when you think of God adopting this means, and really clothing himself with human flesh for the revelation of that which he is, through the stress and trial of human life, you have a motive which is at once godlike and complete. If God had never been manifested in the flesh, if no prophet had ever predicted it, reason would still compel us to anticipate the Incarnation. Now this very thing is declared to have been the purpose of the Incarnation. John says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. John 1.18 If you think of Jesus Christ in this way, if you go back to the four Gospels and study them with the thought of Jesus Christ, As God making himself known to man, you find that the manifestation satisfies every demand of your heart and of your reason. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is the God who answers in every respect to human need. He is felt to be at once a God worthy of adoring worship. He is felt to be a God of power and a God of wisdom and a God of matchless, inexpressible love. No one has ever contemplated the character of Jesus Christ as the manifestation of God and has felt repelled from God by that manifestation. The power of God in nature may terrify, and an imperfect revelation of God written by prophets may perplex. But when we stand before God, unveiled in Jesus Christ, we love and adore Him. It is impossible not to do so. Again the prophets foretold the incarnation, and he said, Hear you now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and will call his name Emmanuel Isaiah seven thirteen and fourteen and for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9-6 Here, beyond all question, hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a prediction was uttered that there should be born into the family of David one who in some mysterious way, should also be God. We may or may not believe that the prophecy was fulfilled, but that it is there no one can dispute. Now when we invoke prophetic testimony, my friends, we bring into court a witness never yet discredited. We have not only this prophecy that the Messiah should be in some mysterious way the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, but we have literally Hundreds of other predictions, detailed and specific, relating to nations, to countries, and to individuals, and these predictions invariably have been literally and precisely fulfilled. The prophets foretold the place of the Messiah's birth, and no one ever questioned that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They foretold the family in which he should be born, the family of David, and no one ever disputed that he was born in the family of David. They foretold the tribe of which he should come, the tribe of Judah. And no one ever denied that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. If in the lifetime of Jesus Christ, or in the years of the first proclamation of the gospel, while the records were still in existence, the Jews had shown that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem, that he was not of the tribe of Judah, and not of the family of David, every disciple would instantly have forsaken him. They were not able to do it. They never disputed it. Never. Of the many prophetic details concerning Jesus, I have called attention to three particulars which were literally fulfilled, and therefore reason compels us to give great weight to the prediction concerning his deity. If a witness has always testified truthfully, the presumption is that all of his testimony is true. A third incontestable proposition is that Jesus himself claimed to be God, manifest in the flesh. Read the following passages upon that point. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. John eight fifty six 56-59 There then was the distinct assertion upon the part of Jesus himself that he existed before Abraham, and that he was the Jehovah of the Old Testament. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him, the son of David. He says to them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord? Matthew twenty two forty one 41-43. Another assertion of his deity. Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from here on you know him and have seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough. Jesus says to him, Have I been so long with you, and have you not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 6-9 You will remember that not once, but many times, this humblest of men, this meekest of men received the worship of his fellow men. This is an act of unspeakable blasphemy, a shocking violation of the first commandment. Did Jesus not know himself to be divine? We have a marked instance of that in the 20th chapter of John. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be to you. Then he says to Thomas, Reach out your finger, and behold my hands, and reach out your hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. John twenty twenty six through 28 Here let me anticipate an objection. You are saying that this is what Jesus says of himself. Very true. But it shuts a candid investigator up to one of two alternatives. Either Jesus was the Son of God, or he, the only sinless being of whom any record has come down to man, was a conscious imposter, a blasphemous wretch, or he was a deluded enthusiast, one or the other. It does not matter which of these latter alternatives you take. The position is abhorrent to reason. That a sinless being would consciously, deliberately commit the most flagrant of all sins in violation of the first commandment, you will have none other gods before me, Deuteronomy 5, seven, could be explained only on the ground of insanity. But the whole record of Jesus' life gives the feeling to a candid observer that he has his sanity, his strength of mind his perfect wisdom and self-poise, and the effect of faith in him as divine has ever been to purify the character and lift it up and sanctify it. On the other hand, were Jesus a weak religious enthusiast, you have to account for the undeniable fact that a self-deceived fanatic was the author of the only perfectly pure religion which when applied to sinful lives has demonstrated its power to transform them into holiness. By either alternative, we are shut up to a greater inconsistency and to a greater demand upon our credulity than to receive as true the simple and sublime statement of the Word of God that for the purpose of making himself known to a race which had gone astray from him, he in his infinite love and pity clothed himself with flesh and lived among men that they might know him. Come to him, trust him, and love him. Remember, too, that other all-compelling motive to incarnation which grows out of our guilt? The most evidently godlike thing in all scripture is the record of self-sacrifice of Jehovah for the sins of his creatures. Only a sinless one could make that sacrifice. Only a deity could gather all sins into one final act. Only in the flesh could deity become a sacrifice. Well, you have here a great mystery, and if the doctrine is true, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John one one. There is one mystery, God. How much do we know about God after all? How much are we, under human limitations, capable of knowing about God? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John one fourteen. another mystery. We know a little more about man than we do about God. But men are great mysteries, two mysteries, the mystery of God and the mystery of man, and these brought together in the Incarnation. Indeed, it would be a difficult religion to believe if there were no mystery in it. That there are mysteries in Christianity is the very mark of God upon it. We have the fact of the deity of Jesus Christ and it accounts perfectly for all the phenomena of his life and his character and of the influence of that life and character upon personal experience and human history. No other theory will account for all those phenomena. Furthermore, it agrees with the predictions of the prophets and the testimony of Christ himself. Are we not, by this very process of reasoning, brought wordless to the necessity of believing that this explanation is the only one credible to sound human reason. Philosophy and scripture agree in the consent that this explanation is adequate. It accounts for all the facts and accounts for them perfectly. There remains the testimony, upon which I did not dwell, of personal experience. Suffice it to say that for 1900 years, faith in Jesus Christ as a divine Savior and Lord has laid hold upon the most degraded human lives and lifted them up into purity. Faith in the deity of Jesus Christ has transformed barbarous into civilized nations. It has established a new standard of right and wrong. Even those who do not accept the personal authority of the divine Jesus know that human personality is the fountainhead. Of every blessing of light liberty and law under which they live as we stand before that gentle and loving and mighty Jesus will not our hearts confirm with trust and love the verdict of our reason which compels us to proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ to be the essence of Christianity in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God John 1, 1.
2: It's interesting because so much of the apologetics I use when discussing my faith is is similar to what he uses. You know, he changed history. He's a real person. All these things. You know how he'll say Christ changes history, how Christ had to be real, how he fulfills all these prophecies perfectly, and he made these bold claims, so either he believes it or not. And all these things that I've kind of always used, and it's been a, way, a part of my talking with people who are not Christians, it's it's the same thing he was using 130 years before me. Um, at the end, he really talks about how faith in Christ takes the worst of us and turns us into something pure and good. And when you remember the background of who Schofield was, I mean, by all accounts, a really pretty terrible person. He's an alcoholic who abandoned his family. It was a corrupt politician. All these things are just not good. And he took that guy and he becomes a preacher who many people hear the gospel through. And yet, uh, and he would found a mission organization that's you know changed so many lives. This guy is telling you how Christ changes history and how Christ changes us too.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Claussen. If uh, you want to know more about Schofield, come on over to the Revive Thoughts website. There you can find the transcript for today's episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. Troy, Joel. Guess what? <laughs> yes, Joel. This is our one year anniversary. Absolutely. This episode here. Woo! How exciting is that? It's actually really exciting. I
2: mean, I don't know that we all knew we were gonna make it to one year. Right. Uh, not not because
1: the show was doing badly, but when we planned it, we didn't know. we had no idea. When we, when cool. we conceptualized this <laughs> show, we had 10 episodes uh, planned written and, and ready to go. That's and right. who would have thought over 50 later we would still be doing the show with thousands of followers that are super encouraging and yeah. super supportive. and it is one of our greatest joys now to do this show. and it's all thanks to all of our listeners. Yes, we could not do this without you guys. You guys have helped us so
2: much and we are very appreciative. And you have told so many people, I cannot tell you how many times people go, I heard about your show from someone else. You shared us on Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, somewhere I saw the link, I clicked it and I I love your show. I heard you do an interview or whatever. So thank you to all of you who have supported us in some different way, whether you had us on your podcast or you told other people about us. We also ask that you continue to do this because we have 50 sermons, but I think Joel and I can definitely tell you we have many many more sermons that we want to bring back for you and many more stories that we want to tell you from here at revive thoughts everyone says this oh you're the best audience i always thought that was the cheesiest line in the world but really it's true with you guys don't know how special you are joel and i regularly uh check other podcasts our size and you guys do amazing things that most people yeah. really would love to have you guys as our listeners i really We're, do think we have the best audience some yeah. of the best people it sounds so cheesy everybody says it but the, i promise you when i check things and i check barometers and stuff for podcast statistics for a show that is our size you guys are doing stuff that other shows want uh, want their audience to do this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts
0: the Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.